Welcome everybody to Barbara. Thanks for Do you usually ask people to introduce themselves? That's a good idea. I'm in sociology, I'm involved in social work, but I'm in that. Uh, my name is Jerry Wilson, I'm in diplomacy, I'm a social scientist, and actually I am interested in hearing about the problems. Mm -hmm. Melissa Martini, graduate assistant for the Center for Faculty Development. Thank you, Kimball. New college communication here at Santa Monica. And uh, I'll be offering, so I'm the Fulbright liaison, as you will see. Mary Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> we all know Mary. We all know Mary. Well, I, I usually start this talk similar to uh, one that I've given in the past uh, by starting with my own experience. So some years ago at my national convention, the National Communication Association, you know how it is with the, uh, the book fair that they usually have, all the publishers are there. I happened to be walking by a table that was the Fulbright table, which I routinely ignored um, looking back. And whoever was working the table that day was very persuasive, just really looking for people to talk to it, impaled me from the crowd. And I couldn't resist, so we went and started talking. And I, and I really got a better sense uh, from that conversation what a Fulbright actually was. And I, you know, I was heard of it, but I never thought of myself in the same conversation. And then it just so happened Later on that year, I found out that a good friend of mine at Nebraska Wesleyan University had just won a Fulbright uh, to, in the blank on which one of the smaller countries, but it's a former Soviet uh, satellite country. And uh, I kept in touch with her during that time. Fulbright sent her, her husband, and her two young kids to, um, who was studying? And she had a wonderful time, and that really made it much more real for me. Here was someone I knew who had done this, who had enjoyed it, um, and came back telling great stories about her time while abroad. So I screwed up my courage, uh, and at, at the time, by the way, I had been advising our student Fulbright applicants. And so I had a sense from the student side what it was like, and since some of the competitive aspects are similar, um, but I did the investigation into the faculty side. I applied to Hungary because I had some connections there uh, previously, and I did not receive the award. I was a finalist, and when I received the note that I had not actually gotten the award, it was a crushing moment. And I vowed I was going to try again because I knew from my time in working with students that the more you apply, and you talked about this previously, the better your chances are. So, regardless of the tenure clock, in my case, I applied again. I decided that I wanted to stay in that region of the world, so I went one country over to Croatia. I did not have any connections, but I was able to establish a good affiliation. I became a finalist, and ultimately in April, over Easter break of 2015, they let me know that I had received the Fulbright. It was a bit of a surprise. I had applied for a full year, and they gave me just a half year, and we negotiated for that to be the spring of 2016. So here are some photos from the city that I was at. I applied to the university, the University of Rijeka in the city. Um, I just had a wonderful time there for five months, uh, you know, three years ago this spring. Made some excellent connections while I was there. The gentleman there uh, closest to us in the left-hand picture uh, is Nico, one of my faculty colleagues, and that's his young son, and in the pink, his daughter, who are twins. We just had a wonderful time getting to know each other. And on the right-hand side 
is a picture on the ninth floor of the main faculty building at the University of Rijeka of my colleagues and I at the Department of English. Had it not been the Department of English, it might have been a little tougher for me because I have no Croatian skills whatsoever. Uh, this is the view from my flat. Uh, so I had a two-bedroom apartment. Fortunately, uh, in my experience, the exchange rate was extremely favorable that spring, so I was able to afford a lot more using the American dollar. Um, and you can see the Adriatic Ocean over the trees there. So that was the, the morning view every morning where I would co have coffee uh, on my balcony. And on the right, you can see I got to know some of the history and wines, which was a really nice part of the experience overall. So as an introduction, by way of introduction, again, this is me. And by the way, if you want to request a copy of this slide deck, I'm glad to send it to you. It has lots of links in it, and it can give you some of the most up-to-date information, as well as my contact uh, information. So welcome to our workshop. This is what I have in mind uh, for today. I think it's about 20 or 25 minutes or so, so we'll leave plenty of time for questions. Um, and also my role as the Fulbright liaison is a sort of coach. So I, my, I get to recruit folks and encourage you to apply, um, but also to help you through the process. So we were just talking about Catherine Pinker from Diplomacy, who will, will be going to South America in the next school year. I work very closely with her on her application and spend a lot of time conceptualize what her strategy would be and what her approach would be. And I'm glad to do that with any of our faculty members. It's part of the, part of the role. So this is uh, what I have in mind. Uh, we begin first with an overall perspective on the Fulbright program. Um, so you've heard the name before. Of course, it's Senator Fulbright from <coughs> Arkansas, uh, who had this vision for a program going back to 1946. And the vision was that it's a sort of diplomatic propaganda, if you will, um, propaganda in the most neutral sense of the term, mm -hmm. um, building relationships among countries and putting the U.S. in a favorable light in, in, within those relationships. It is a State Department program, so if you become a Fulbrighter, the U.S. government is paying for you to go somewhere. You may also get some funds from your host country that will vary depending on the position that you have, but it is not administered by the State Department. You work very closely with that group on the bottom bullet there, the CIES, um, as well as another group called IIE. So they outsource the application process. Um, but it's, it's pretty transparent how it works. So some of the numbers you can see on the screen here, probably the key ones for our purposes are on the left-hand side, over 800 Fulbrighters, uh, that's US scholars, receive grants every year. It's a pretty generous amount. It's hundreds of thousands, I guess it's probably millions of dollars uh, that are being spent on this program. There's no reason that we as Seton Hall folks couldn't be tapping into this opportunity. And it's also good, of course, for our university because the president likes to brag about all the full rights that we get. There's also a wide array of countries. The numbers that you'll see um, listed vary from slide to slide. Later on, I have a slide that says 125. I think that's because of the different programs have different rosters of, of countries that work with them. So this is probably the broadest spectrum of countries um, that they work with. Fulbright scholars come from across the university. Um, almost any specialty that you can imagine, from the arts to medicine to the sciences to law, um, so any of the specialties that you all have mentioned um, today, there are Fulbrighters who have gone abroad and done their work as a Fulbrighter. There are lots of reasons to do Fulbright. Um, so whether it's uh, for you personally, for you as a scholar in your career, 
um, for you as a colleague within your department or within your college. And the Fulbright can be a positive experience and help you to grow in each of those areas. Um, so as you see on the bullets there, the first one is internationalization. That's uh, still a buzzword. It might be diminishing a little bit from where it was about 10 years ago. But nonetheless, when you go before a promotion committee and you talk about internationalization in your personal journey, having a Fulbright is one way to talk about that. Um, global engagement is another buzzword that we see quite a bit. Um, in terms of your personal growth, your own maturity as a person um, or as a scholar, um, as a colleague, um, as a teaching resource, for me, um, I talk about my experiences in Croatia quite a bit, um, and I have made those connections, and you can see some of the uh, collaborations and partnerships with folks uh, in Croatia. I brought some guest lecturers over, I'm still in contact with them. I was planning a trip uh, back there this spring to do kind of a reunion uh, trip, and I don't think that's going to happen there. I don't think it's horrible, but maybe next spring. So finally, on the bottom there, uh, being vetted for other awards is something else to think in terms of your strategy uh, as a career. When you apply for competitive awards, let's say you're applying for a Smithsonian Fellowship or something from uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities or the Sciences, right? Uh, when you have a Fulbright, it says to those committees that you've been previously vetted by another competitive committee. And it's not like they're going to just skip over your application and say, oh, he's got it or she's got it. But you do have the benefit of the doubt. So you can look more competitive when you have this sort of award in mind. Okay. Let's talk about the U.S. experience uh, for American scholars, because it is a larger program than that. Students go, there are international scholars who come to the U.S., as you mentioned previously, as Fulbrighters. Um, but my role is primarily as the Fulbright liaison uh, looking over domestic grantees who are going abroad. So the Fulbright program itself, you can see the breakdown here for U.S. scholars. Um, a huge percentage of it is the core Fulbright program. And that's primarily what I'll be talking about today. That's um, not, not exclusively, but just about exclusively what I know about and what they train me to talk about. There are other opportunities. I will mention them, but you should know now I don't know much about them off the top of my head. I'm glad to research them with you. If you think that something specific would be of interest to you, that's part of my role. Okay. Some thoughts about the Fulbright experience as a U.S. scholar. Um, so usually you're abroad for a semester, and maybe two semesters in the school year. Um, but they are increasingly aware that our careers, our family lives, are not open to those sorts of regimented opportunities. And so they increasingly are open to flex sorts of options. You can go uh, multiple times over a period of two years. Um, and of course, there's a roster of countries where that's um, available. Um, we all have a home university affiliation here, but if you do know folks, you know, artists, friends and so on who are not affiliated with the university, they too, like their professionals, can apply for Fulbright's. Some of the bottom line eligibility requirements uh, from their perspective that aren't negotiable, at least for a domestic grantee going abroad, you have to be a U.S. citizen. Um, many of the opportunities require a specific degree. The most common would be a Ph.D. In some fields, it may be an MFA or whatever the terminal degree may be in that particular field. Um, others are open to uh, an MA or another sort of MA program. As I mentioned, professionals and artists outside 
of academia. If you're applying for a teaching award, you're just not going to be competitive, competitive if you don't have teaching experience. And so that's something for you to factor in that I would talk over with you. Um, and there are some new policies every year, and so if you want to click on that link at some point and take a look at some of the small changes they make from year to year, um, that will give you an idea of what they're doing. This looks specifically at the core Fulbright program. So there are two primary components, and there's actually a mixture of the two, so I guess you could argue that there's uh, three. Um, one is the teaching component. That's what I did. Um, so I did not conduct research in Croatia. Um, I'm a propaganda scholar relating to the home front in World War II. So I wouldn't have been able to get much research done anyway except what I brought with me. Plus I don't speak the local language, so that was also a bit limiting. Uh, but there are uh, awards where you can conduct research. So you can propose to be affiliated with a university or some other institution, maybe a laboratory, um, and have a project. And so it's much like many other sorts of fellowships or grants in that respect. And there are some opportunities where you can combine the research as well as the teaching. So we'll get to some of those specific opportunities a little bit later in this talk. If you don't speak the local language, it does not necessarily rule you out. As I said, I don't speak any Croatian. I learned enough to ask where the bathroom was and say hi and stuff like that. That was uh, about as far as I got. Um, in many parts of the world, people get by pretty well in English. Um, Americans do, and the, uh, the folks who are there, the hosts, often have those English skills. There are grants, uh, particularly if you're teaching for a program that is not an English department, where you're going to need to have a pretty good facility in the language. Here you see a different number, 125 entries. <laughs> so I assume this is for the, the core program. It is open to administrators um, as well, so we mentioned them yet. So if you're a friendly local administrator, your, your chair or your dean might be interested in this sort of program as well. Uh, each opportunity will list which disciplines it is open to. Sometimes they're open to all disciplines, but some of them are very specific. So you might see, for instance, a university in Germany that's seeking a physics professor. And they usually have some sort of design in mind. Maybe they've lost someone to retirement, and the Fulbrighter is sort of a gap your position for them. Um, so it's going to be very uh, by the opportunity. Uh, so you will apply for a specific award to a specific country. You cannot apply more than once in a given year when you, or, you know, to more than one position. Uh, when the year is over, if you don't get it, you can apply for another country or another opportunity, which is what I did. You can also go back as a Fulbrighter. Now, this, this policy does vary. They change it up every now and then. Uh, when I was in, you had to wait, I believe it was four years or it might be five years between Fulbrights or among Fulbrights before you can apply um, But when I was in there in Croatia, another Fulbrighter, a scholar from Ohio, this was his second Fulbrights. He had been previously to um, somewhere in the Soviet Union, uh, a little further east actually, from where we were. The deadline every year is August 1st. That seems pretty invariable. Um, so here we are in early April. So we still have time to come up with a good application and to get those essays in order. And there's a list of the different kinds of hosts that uh, you can be affiliated with. An affiliation is ordinarily a requirement, um, and it will tell you now that is often the hardest part of your application, is getting an invitation from someone, some institution, a university, a research center, an institute, and so on, uh, to have that in hand as part of your package. You can apply without it, but it is a bit of a, 
it's not going to be very convincing for the committee if you don't have that affiliation. Okay. The core awards uh, benefits themselves. Uh, and the answer to the questions that may be coming up in your mind at this moment is it varies. It really does. Um, a lot of the variation is dependent on the host country. So some host countries support the Fulbright program very generously. And so a lot of the money comes from the host country. In my case, all of my housing and board was paid, paid by the state of Croatia. And I received a monthly check from them for that. Um, but there's a salary that comes from uh, Fulbright from the U.S. government and that varies by your rank, that varies by the country and the opportunity. Um, you may have a travel or relocation allowance. I did have that. I went to Croatia with two gigantic duffel bags. <laughs> Came back with two gigantic duffel bags and a suitcase. Uh, and there, in the third line there, you can see that there is often, not always, often a book and research allowance. Um, and that is for your host country, at least in my case it was. Um, so they gave me a budget of $500, and they instructed me to contact my host university, my department, and to say, I've got $500 to spend on books or supplies for you. What would you like? So they gave me a list of, and they prioritized the 20 books. I was able to order, I don't remember how many, um, and then we had them shipped via Amazon through the diplomatic pouch, which was cool, uh, right to the department. And they arrived as I got there. So it was like, this, they were so excited they got these brand new books for their departmental library. So it was a, a nice coup, in a sense, uh, to show up and have that be right there. Uh, in many cases, your dependents can go with you on your Fulbright. So my friend, as I said, her husband, who was a carpenter, uh, took leave from his position, he was just an independent you know, contractor, uh, and went to Estonia and worked as a carpenter there, learning from local carpenters working with him. So a good experience for him as well. Uh, and their children went to a local English language school for that year. Fulbright supported uh, that option. So uh, don't count yourself out if there are dependents. If there are pets, I don't think they'll take those. <laughs> Uh, often there is a housing allowance. In my case, you know, I, I didn't end up paying anything extra for housing. It was actually pretty generous. I was able to get a two-bedroom flat, which was more than most people were able to have in Jamaica. I should mention in that last bullet that there is a, such a thing as a Fulbright gap. Uh, what I mean by that is when you crunch the numbers, your income for that Fulbright semester or Fulbright year, considering that you have either no income or less income from Seton Hall, you often end up a little bit behind. And so that's known as the Fulbright gap. But a lot of schools, what we do is they have an arrangement where they will bridge any Fulbright gap so that you don't actually lose money in the process. Uh, Seton Hall is not yet in that gap. But I encourage you, if you get a Fulbright, to negotiate with the provost and to let them know that this would be dependent, possibly, on you taking the award. See what they can do. Right? They do want us to take Fulbrights. So I think that they would at least be open to some negotiation. Uh, can I just ask a question? But wouldn't we on sabbatical, wouldn't we be on this? So it means that if you got a sabbatical and then you got this, the people more will ask you to not take yourself. In my case, I ended up on a non-sabbatical year taking leave, okay. uh, so I didn't have that personal experience. Um, but those of you who have taken a sabbatical before, is it the case that you're not supposed to receive a salary that will bump you more than your normal salary. Like if you get a fellowship, you can't go above your normal age. I don't know. <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. I've yeah, only had one heavier status so far. 
And also, Fulbright wants to know how much your university is paying you. Right, I see. So maybe they'll, they'll do the adjustment. So there's some, there is some adjustment on that side of the ball. Yeah. Um, so I ended up a little bit behind. Uh, the primary issue is I was still paying on a mortgage here, and I was ending up you know, with living expenses there. Um, we still worth it. It's definitely worth it. All right, so the process uh, itself. Um, so that's we're right here at number one, uh, thinking about our approach. Where would you want to go? Where would you want to apply? Um, and then for the remainder of the spring, if you wanted to apply, we'd be looking at developing your uh, project. And that would be my role is to help you with that as much as you wanted me to do. The application itself is due August 1st. And then it takes a long time. So ordinarily, you won't find out if you're a finalist until at least January of the following year. And then begins another long process of waiting, if you are a finalist, to know if you actually have received the award. So to explain what those terms mean, uh, you first go through a stateside committee, and the stateside committee can eliminate you um, off the top, right? If you get past that level, then you're a finalist. The, let's say that if you're applying to Hungary and there are 10 full right positions in that upcoming year, they will forward 15 or so to Hungary, and then the in-country, the host country committee, will select those 10 from the 15 finalists. And so that process um, is dependent on the host country. Some countries are much faster than others. So Catherine found out, I think about a month ago, so it was in mid-March, which was pretty early. Um, I didn't find out until Easter break, uh, sometime in, it was mid to late April back then. Uh, and I've heard of people hearing in May. So it really does depend on how fast the country uh, is. So that's something to think about. It's a little bit misleading that, that you fly at number five because you may not get it. But I guess we're thinking optimistically. Optimistically. So you want to be sure that you are selecting the best award for you. It needs to be a match for you, your expertise, your background, whatever it might be. One factor that Fulbright doesn't talk about that I think is important for us to stress is the issue of competitiveness. So if, let's say, you have, you had an interest in both the United Kingdom and Ukraine, my advice to you would be to apply to Ukraine. And the reason for that is a lot of people apply for the UK. So many that it's ultra-competitive and your chances are significantly reduced. If you're applying for the Ukraine, not that it's a bad place, but fewer people year after year will apply there, and so your application is automatically more competitive. That was one reason I decided to apply to Croatia, because it was someplace where I knew I wouldn't mind living for five months or a year. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it would be great. Um, but also, I thought, felt like it was a place that not a, a lot of people would be applying to. Um, so the percentages were better. Do they share that information with us, or is this really <laughs> I asked about that, and I was told that the U.S. State Department does not feel that it's in the interest of the U.S. government to let other countries know how interested we are. Mm -hmm. It seemed kind of circuitous, but I don't know. Um, the, but the good news is that the students... Simple, simple person. That makes sense. That makes sense? <laughs> All right. However, the students have a parallel program where they apply for their full rights, and those numbers are published. Yeah. So I think that we have roughly parallel numbers that we can access. Mm -hmm. and so that's where my mm -hmm. 
choice of Croatia came from my look at the student numbers, and they went, oh yeah, I'm pulling that. So it's a little bit better. Uh, do you have experience uh, in the region? Do you have the language ability? So these, depending on the award, would be key considerations. Regional experience or some other connection is often important. You have to keep in mind that, let's say, if there are 50 applications in a given committee member's pile, and you're number 29, what makes you step out in that pile? Right? Or you're just number 29 and you get passed on and then you're number 30. One way that that works is through the fit. Maybe it's your personal family heritage that's a fit. You know, my ancestors came from this country. Um, or maybe you've done a lot of research on this particular country in your publications. But having that fit be there is a way for you to stand out as number 29 in that pile of applications. Okay, so we've covered some of this already, the relevance of the, the project to the country, what will benefit them, um, and then there are various career levels as well. Okay, we can look at the catalog award. I'm pretty sure this link works here. Take a time out from the slides. Yeah. Assuming let's say you got the award, do they actually allow you to defer it if let's say stuff comes up in or not in my experience. So you satisfy basically declining. Reapply. Yeah. They 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 can afford to do that because it's such a big program, you know. they're not desperate for applicants over here and they do have the the wait list, the, the other finalists. Um, so do you have any particular country of interest that we want to look at? Kind of see what we've been talking about. Where do you want to go? Albania. Okay. It's Kos I don't know. Kosovo's on there, so that one's kind of a strange one. You want to try Kosovo first? Yeah. Albania is definitely first. So we have here. Here's Kosovo. They're right near Croatia. Right next door. Yeah. Right down the peninsula. Okay. So there are two awards for Kosovo. One higher education. So does that no, sound like that's the administrator? Yeah, yeah they're shorter here. Mm -hmm. um, this I is for any discipline. Absolutely get the shorter one. I like flexibility. Yeah. So if you click on this, and you can see all the details, how long it is, the possibilities for the dates. Uh, sorry, the flex app option isn't available here, um, but it will tell you, you know, either way. It uh, has preferences for some disciplines, as you can see there. Okay, and Christina. And you see, you can see, and this is this is different from what I've seen on some other sites. So you can see that uh, the university here is very involved. Um, there are requirements for the award. So if you want, they prefer the letter of invitation. Whenever they say that, really, they mean we need it. Because unless you're the only applicant, someone else that has it is almost certainly going to be chosen over you. So I, I have heard from <laughs> one of my dissertation advisors that there's been some years when no one applied for those Right? Zero applications. And I study separatism, so it would make a good place to make yeah. to go there. Absolutely. Um, so you know, if you are looking to apply in this cycle, the first step I think would be to reach out to them. Yeah. Uh, so when I, so brief anecdote here, when I ended up applying to Croatia, my intermediate step was uh, Slovenia, um, which is a smaller country just to the north. Um, and they, it's, a, it's a small country, they just had the one major university, and I contacted them to 
the important affiliation. And they said, we already were contacted by someone and we're giving them our letter of affiliation. We only do that with one scholar. So they were unwilling to do that. Yes, yes, so they were very nice about that. And so the, the sooner if they're the same they way, jump on it. Yeah, yeah. the sooner you can get in touch. Um, so you can run the numbers for each of the awards. They'll tell you what the stipend is, if there are special allowances. So they, they try to be very clear. Oh, they have a $1,500 book allowance. That's great. Um, and the dependent tuition. So all of these award profiles give you the details uh, that, that can get you at least further along. They will also, at the bottom, give you contact information. So sometimes that's with somebody in uh, the organization that runs the applications. They have people who are in charge of particular areas of the world, those applications. This one looks like it's somebody at the embassy uh, in the country. So, so Jim, I have a question. So in this particular case, right, they, they specify actually the University of Pristina, right? So, so it seems that they already have someone there, or at least an institution that they work with. Yeah. So in your experience, that's probably the best path forward? Yes. In that country? Okay. I would say so. Okay. I mean, it seems how they're guiding you. Yeah. You might, though, contact the Fulbright person who oversees that, and can facilitate that. Um, to see if they would recommend looking elsewhere within the country. Yeah, because I, I, I think I'm, I'm thinking about Japan, but in Japan I, I actually have colleagues that I am in communication with, right? I never asked them, of course, if they would ever do something like this, but, but you know, they are people that I know of, right, who yeah. do something there, but also do kind of all these in other communities. Well, whatever, right? So, so in that okay. case, you would have to, I guess, it would be better to go? I, I think we should ask. Um, yeah, so the, the, the people who oversee that region and see those applications every year, and they have a pretty good sense for what the committees pick up or don't. Okay. Um, so we, we can see their guidance. Okay. So it's really a country by country. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm saying it varies a lot. <laughs> but it does. All right, so you get, that gives you at least a, a brief introduction to what the application opportunities look like. So you mentioned flex awards, uh, so just some, some more details on that, um, going multiple points uh, to the host country in shorter bits. Um, so some countries will allow that. And you can, when you go back, not too late now, in the catalog of awards, you can search for flex awards specifically through the search engine. Okay. This is another opportunity, and I don't know too much about the multi-country opportunities. But this is something, although she didn't apply for this, that Catherine Tinker could have applied for because her the aquifer she's studying is under several countries, which is the reason there's a, a treaty related to it. Um, so I did not know until she was in the application process that she was going to apply, or I might have directed her towards something like this. Or maybe that she looked into it and it wasn't available for South America, I don't know. But that's an option for folks who have multi-country interests. And uh, you have the World Regions Award. So if you have a global focus and you want to do something comparative, and this might especially apply to folks in diplomacy, right? More political science. Um, you have those, those sorts of options uh, as well. And again, just like any award, you have to be very specific why you're going to do this, justify it, and make it, make it a good reason. Okay, so you, this might 
address the question you were asking earlier. If a host is identified, it will be found under location. Um, but I do think that we can ask if you know, one of the identified may have other ideas. Um, many of them won't specify, and so you have to do your research, you know, work your connections, work with me. Um, in some cases, the folk, pers person who is in charge of the Fulbright's uh, applications for a particular region can offer us suggestions. Uh, the embassies uh, are willing to work with us. There's usually somebody in the embassy who directly works with the local Fulbrighters. Uh, but probably the best way to go is the Fulbright Scholar Directory. So uh, Fulbright has this uh, comprehensive directory going back for I don't know how many years of everyone, every scholar, who has received the Fulbright Award listed by country, listed by specialty. Um, so you can look back to see who has gone to coast school before. I did this. So when I was applying to both Hungary and to Croatia, I contacted previous scholars. They said, tell me about it. What's it like? What is your advice? And since I've come back, a number of potential applicants have been in touch with me. What did you like about Croatia? What would you advise? And some of them ended up going on to Croatia. Uh, you will want that letter of invitation. Um, we've already touched on this. Um, if you want a sample letter for that, um, uh, my letter is... The Oh, I didn't hear that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Follow-up question when you're done. With right. Sorry. So <laughs> my letter, the affiliation was almost the exact same wording as my friends from the university, from Nebraska Wesley University. That's because she loaned it to me. I asked for her, for her permission, and which used the same letter, so it worked pretty well. Yeah. So the how, what sort of role in the institution does the letter writer have? Faculty, that be an administrator, a dean? Usually, my impression is a dean just because you want someone who has a position of authority. Um, so keep in mind the, the committee's eyes, right? So yeah. if it's from a faculty person, the committee members might say, I don't know, here, this person over here has the president of the university. Right. You know, just, so just in terms of competitiveness, okay. I don't know if there's a requirement that. Do you, do you know if it's normal to. Um, go and get to that person sort of through connections with faculty sure. Yes. Yes. Um, and in fact, when, so also uh, foreign scholars get in touch with me because they want to come here for a Fulbright offer. Right. Um, and that's often the process that we'll go through. So I'll contact a, a, a special person with a specialty, a faculty member, and they will work with their chair or their teacher. Okay. None of those have worked out yet. So we're still waiting for the, our first foreign Fulbrighter. Um, at least since I've been doing this. Um, so yeah, I'm glad to share that letter with you if you want uh, that, that wording. So here's that process again here. It's a little bit more specific, and you can see that it does take uh, quite a long time. Uh, with the operative time when you get the news, February to May, where you're notified of the final approval or not. So it's a pretty long process. By the time you get notification, you're like, did I apply for Fulbright? Oh, okay. <laughs> a long time ago. So the process itself. Um, so the process, the application is pretty involved, like any major grant like this. Uh, so there is a form itself, lots of uh, uh, details, demographics and so on, where you've been. They will want to know when you've traveled abroad, where you've traveled abroad. Um, so all those sorts of details about you and your background. Um, State Department project. So, uh, the project statement itself um, is basically your essay that says what you want to do, um, and there is one for teaching as well. So, I had to propose 
what I, my vision was for teaching at the University of Rieka. And I had been in touch with the departments and talked with them about what classes they might need, what expertise areas I have that could fit well with their students. And they ended up teaching some public speaking classes because they don't have that in their curriculum. And they were so excited to have somebody come talk and you know, teach public speaking. Uh, your CV, uh, CV will be part of the application as well. If you are teaching a sample syllabus, I recommend uh, fitting that to the situation. So I created a brand new syllabus for a course that they wanted me to create and that was new to me. Um, if you're doing research and bibliography, um, you will have three letters of reference uh, and those can be from whomever. There's no stipulation on, on who those are from. Um, you do want to think about competitiveness again, right? So if it's from your friend Joe, it's just not going to be as competitive. Uh, let's see, and then depending on the award, um, I would say the letter of invitation is probably almost always something you really ought to have. When I send this to you, if you do want it, these are all active links. And so you can click on these and, and explore further. And I'm glad to do that with you. Um, if you want to meet one-on-one -on -one and talk about the process. Um, but it's really quite detailed. There are sample essays there that can show you how other people have done it. Um, and what I would recommend to you is when you contact folks uh, in the Fulbright database who've been to where you, you want to go, ask them for whatever they'll share with you. I've shared my essays when, you know, with the demographic group, uh, my complete application with other folks, um, just as a means of helping. It's, it's a really positive community um, where folks are helping each other. In your application, particular, particularly in your essay, um, the phrase mutual understanding or phrases that are synonymous with that is pretty important. Keep in mind that this is a form of governmental outreach. And the vision that Fulbright had, the Senator Fulbright had in the beginning, is still very alive in the program. You want to think about the fifth in the second bullet there. What is it about you at this time in this location that makes you stand out as an excellent fit versus everybody else who has applied for that country or that place. Maybe it's your ancestry or your teaching interests or you've traveled there before and you loved it. I mean, whatever that fit is, we have to make it so that you stick out in some way. I use the phrase cultural diplomacy once or twice in my application. <laughs> and you want to think too about outcomes. What will be the result of this? And so Fulbright's very interested, and your host is very interested, in this not being a one-and-done sort of thing, but rather, what will be the outcome of this? What will, how will it improve you, uh, your scholarship, your collaborations? What will you bring back to your home institution? How will your host institution change as a result of this, this exchange of ideas, um, collaborations, and so on? The project statement itself will be as specific as possible. It is, now I think it's, it's three to four pages, so you can be pretty detailed with it. And you want to be a bit, a bit artistic with it if you can, right? So keep in mind that committee members often get all their applications in one big pile. If yours is just uh, one more application that's not very much fun to read, it's unlikely to get their attention. All right. Here we are back to the process. And finally, back to the information about. So I'm glad to share 
these slides with you back to my experience in Croatia. I highly recommend the experience. I know not every place is like Rijeka was, um, but it is a process of reaching out to our colleagues across the world. So if you have the opportunity, I would urge you to look into it. I'm glad to help with that process. So let me stop talking there and see if you have any questions. How do we do on time? So, while I look into this, I, I think I'm much more vulnerable to politics than most because of what I research, which is separatism and sort of diplomatic ties between separatists and third parties. Yes. Um, therefore, the Global Scholars Program is interesting because, uh, you, you may correct me, but it's my understanding that the, the host states don't have the same sort of veto in that program as they do with the one-off with the sort of one. I, I, that sounds right, but I don't know as much about that program. Yeah. So I fear that I would be vetoed practically anywhere mm -hmm. just because I publish on separatism and because this is the thing I studied. Mm -hmm. Which is part of why I'm interested in Kosovo, which it would be the only country probably on that whole list which would interpret that in a favorable light rather than a favorable light. Does that, does that all sound like a reasonable set of yes, absolutely. differences to you? The host country gets the final say over whether they're going to, who they're going to host. Yeah, so Turkey's okay. not going to want me. Oh, yeah. not going to want me. They, 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 they perceive you. <laughs> if there's a perception on the part of the host country that you're critical of them, you know, they kind of have a vested interest in saying, oh, thanks. We'll, we'll look at somebody else. So. Yeah. Make these so the funny thing is, I'm not pro-censorship <laughs> at all. Like, well, they must read Right, of yeah. archives. I mean, maybe that's kind of what would justify why you want to go there. There will be these archives about movements. So, so you just don't know who's on the committee. No. Um, so, to give you an anecdote from my Hungary experience or non experience. So, I applied there. I had done a study abroad there back in 2001, and I had made connections there with a member of parliament. So he's close to me, he was a pretty well known. Um, and so, I asked him, I thought this would be great, to write one of my letters of reference for the application to Hungary. And he said to me, he said, I'm willing to do it. You should know I have some very prominent enemies in Hungary. And I said, ah, I'd like to do it anyway. And when I didn't get it, I thought to myself, okay, maybe he was right, and maybe somebody on the committee knew who he was and said, why would Miklos, why would we choose someone that Miklos likes? And so I didn't know if that was the reasoning, sure. but it can be very political. So the committee is in the whole conference. Once you get to the final level, yeah. And this selection process is specifically done by people in government, right? It varies. <laughs> oh, yes, okay. it does. Yeah, uh, so sometimes, like our embassy has people on that uh, on that committee, but it usually, my understanding is is kind of people in the country, um, nationals. I mean, to be honest, most of the time, even if they're not in government, they're gonna they're gonna toe the, the government line anyway. Yes. 
that's popular, right? The, the full board in the country. That's a great question. Um, I do not know the answer to that, but that that's a, would be a way, an area for us to research and, and look for those names. I do know from the side leaving the country in the room there was always two US State Department. So they probably convene it, right? Yeah. Keep track of the, the votes yeah, the and so officer of the yeah. yeah, that makes sense. But in the, in the case of Croatia, that person was a Croatian national. Right? Even though she was an employee of the, the embassy. Well, there are multiple reveal convenes, one here, yes, so and then they decide who to send it to, and then there's a local yes. in the host country, and then we do it again. Yes. Oh. Yes. So if you are a finalist, you pass the domestic U.S. hurdle, and then you're uh, in the package of the finalists that go to the host country. But they will get the final set. Does the U.S. send multiple names to a host country, or just mm -hmm. more than the positions available? backups. And sometimes you know, when you're a finalist and you don't get it, that's what happened to you. Didn't make it past the last hurdle. Other questions? Do you know anyone who's not the flex option and how does that I do not. I'm perfectly willing to look more into it and can investigate how it would fit in your situation. Considering the current relations between the US and China, do you think that I would apply to both China? Yeah. And that can be more compatible. I don't have a more compatible. It's a good question. Um, I don't I do politics does play a role in some of these, right? But it seems like the China and uh, China Fulbright opportunities are pretty robust. So I think both countries seem to be pretty committed to it. I would imagine it's probably pretty competitive. But you're in physics, so they would want to. Yes. <laughs> they not a, not yes. A, you're yes. studying more than you would. Yes. Yes. That's the question. On the other hand, you know, with your application, uh, I'm not a physics person, but the committee, you know, you may not have a physics background, will have to be able to understand what you do. Yes, for a layperson. Yeah. What you do? Yeah, the other countries, I mean, I'd like to go to other countries. It's just, I don't speak their languages, maybe I wouldn't have any advantage, right, to apply to other countries. Well, if you had a teaching award, and the host, either the university or the host department, is in English, right? Um, so I mean, there, there are English language universities, just like in the uh, Europe Central European University, which currently is in Budapest and may eventually end up in Vienna. Um, it's entirely English. And so in that sort of situation, you know, your language is perfectly compatible. And most of Western Europe, it seems, it's English. Yeah. yeah. But I don't want to do a teaching. If, if that's only for teaching work. I don't want to do a teaching work. I just want to do research. research. So the language, it seems more likely to be a requirement. Yeah. yeah. But we can investigate the options and see what's out there for you. Other questions? Oh, by the way, visa. We apply for visa. Visa is 
There's, I had a, an exemption, so I was in Croatia for five months, which requires a visa, you're there longer than the tourist stay, um, but because I had a full right, they waived that requirement for me. Um, and so it gave the, the guys at the passport control a pause, I had to show them the letters and it took a long time. But but they gave the waiver here, or over when you were entering the... the no, I had the letter with me when I flew. Okay. But they, they give you precise instructions what to take with you and what to have mm -hmm. when you go across the border. Because usually a three-month birth that we have a, two, a, US, a US passport, you should have three months. That sounds right. I don't know if it's changed since 2016, but I think that's what it was. But if you apply for a sabbatical, you got no sabbatical, request of proof here, but you didn't, if you didn't get your Fulbright application, then... <laughs> then you have a sabbatical without the Fulbright, right? Yeah, um, yeah the timing is, is not optimal. So in my case, uh, I did have my sabbatical the year I did not get to go to Hungary. Um, but I applied then, I forget exactly what the time was, but my, my Fulbright was not in my sabbatical cycle. So I had to negotiate with the, the provost office how to handle that. And I did pay a price. Um, so it delayed my application for promotion to full press professor by a year. It's frustrating. Can you mind going back to that the global scholar slide? So this one's like brand new in the last year or two. Uh, yeah. I think. Right? This it looks to be structured in a really like, do you know anyone who's done this, or is it metallic structure? No. I don't know, but we can look in the database, and, and there will be people who have done it. We can talk to them. So, if you don't mind, one of the reasons why this was interesting is the what project I'm working on. I am interviewing foreign ministry people in several self-determination movements. Right. Um, so it makes a lot of sense for me to have three several-week one month, one and a half month trips to very different parts of the world, but of course I'm worried about getting vetoed. Though um, uh, so I think I can very much pitch this project as a like peace building, separatism preventing kind of um, <laughs> kind of. No, in terms of like the policy implications, right? Like, let's understand how these groups manage to legitimize themselves internationally so that we can squish it, right? Like, I can miss the project that way if I want to. But I need to, like, this, this one would make a lot of sense for me. It looks like a good fit. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I think I could probably get away with saying, well, no, I don't have the specific language skills. This kind of research is. A, probably going to happen in English anyway, because we're talking about foreign ministry people. And if I need interpreters, well, I can't, I can't be expected to speak three totally different languages, right? So it seems like that might be part of the package, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I would say let's uh, sit down and look into it, and maybe talk to the officer who, who oversees this program. Okay. And see what we can, we can cook up. Okay. I'll, I'll contact you about that. I'd say a little, little harder just because of the language. The um, so teaching is going to be, well, I think I'm going to take that back. Mm -hmm.
for me, you know, it's, it, it felt like when I was applying that there were more opportunities that would allow for a non-local language speaker like me. I grew up in Nebraska, so that's, you know, there's no other language in very, very far, far uh, from my home, home state. Um, so, uh, I guess I don't really answer that question for sure. Um, it felt to me like a teaching had given you more opportunities with only one language. And that research was often very specific. It was a language specific. But so, this is, for example, in, in the Japan case, I know that on the graduate level, they teach in English, right? And then they want more people to come in to teach. Not that I don't really want to go there and teach, but if that's going to improve the chances of yes. how do that, right? Because they want more of that. Um, yeah. Now, having said that, of course, the proficiency of the students are really not up to scratch. And so, people that know to teach there in English mm -hmm. complain, right? Okay. But it's a need that. And I know many other places like Turkey also does it. It's also supposed to be English. Again, not that they're actually in that profession, but officially they teach in English at the collegiate level, right? So, hmm. so that's kind of. Yeah, maybe the situations were, were different, but I, I didn't have a problem uh, teaching in English. Yeah. Uh, the students were um, amazingly linguistically gifted, I thought. Yeah. But for your research, you said you're in anthropology? Yes. Right? So, what sort of research would that entail? Well, in, uh, in Japan, well, because of my, I just mentioned to you, I do my work in Mindanao, and it's indigenous textiles, right? But, but the particular textile form I, I'm studying, right, if I expand it more towards, like, you know, early modern history, actually has a very specific distribution, and one of the distributions is up in Japan, which is the Wookiee Islands, right? So, so it's this Okinawan kind of banana fiber stuff, which I'm dying to look at, right? Uh, because it connects to like so it's got that spin to it. Um, and I know that they have valued it there too. So it's kind of like this museum and the contemporary communities kind of because it's still a living tradition over there, right? Um, so that's kind of but this is kind of like a long thing, you know, like if I can do it for Fulbright rate, if I never do it, that's fine too. But it's it's actually something that that's pretty much all I've published on, right? And this connection is very important. Um, however, the people I'm in contact with are not, you know, <laughs> the people right. I'm in contact with yeah. are pretty much in, in Tokyo, right? Yeah. Uh, and I know them only because of my professional relationships. And, and these are Philippine studies scholars who are Japanese professors in Japan, which doesn't mean they can't sponsor me, right? right. They will be happy for someone to go there, right? And so, and, and, and one of them is actually also an anthropologist, right? And the other one's a right? So these are the two people I have in mind who would want to help me. And like I said, they would help me because I said I also want to apply for the other. Mm -hmm. So if you could conduct the research there locally without facility in the local language, yeah. um, so maybe if you weren't doing interviews um, or if you could have a colleague who was willing to assist you with the networking and the connections. Yes, You'd have to make the case. Yeah. And it had to be convincing. Well, that's one idea. The other one is that I don't even know if there's one in the Netherlands. <laughs> but then mm. you're in the Netherlands, so it's more like, again, connection with the textile stuff. But in their case, it's really more like using the collection. So they have probably the oldest piece I know of okay. in the world of this kind of textile store, my study. 
that I visited there in the past. I've, you know, I've seen it. I asked them there as a grad student. Now I want to go back and. There's a good connection. Right? Yeah. Back to the Okinawa for a second. One other way to do this might be to propose to teach in Okinawa. Mm -hmm. And as part of your project essay, say that while I'm there, I want to keep enriching my own personal research agenda mm -hmm. by investigating these local areas and building those connections. Yeah. That I don't think they could require a language. Yeah. Um, and you can still kind of do it while you're teaching. Yeah. I don't mind. It's warmer. <laughs> How are we doing? Okay. Yeah. Do you have any questions? No, I just, you know, one of the things I was wondering is what about a country like Japan? How competitive is something like that, do you think? Pretty competitive. Yeah, I would think yeah. so. Um, yeah. I, I know that we've, we've pretty much gone beyond the first world, second world, and the third world uh, division. Um, but if you think back to that, that's maybe a rough guy, or maybe just think in terms of tourism. So the, the higher the levels of tourism, most likely the more competitive it's going to be. It's just where people, your typical American, wants to go. So you know, I would never apply to Australia. Are you saying if that scholars are going to I brought my mom to Croatia and she was petrified. What's in Croatia? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been twice, only been as far as the um, I've been a swimmer. Um, in Croatia? No, in, in, in Japan. Oh, Japan? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I add to a lot of Japanese, uh, there's a lot of Japanese interest in American literature. Yeah. Um, a lot of Japanese scholars write about American literature, especially 20th century American literature. They tend to weigh. Fitzgerald's Hemingway's, you know, that, that period in particular. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing is, people go there to teach in other capacities through other programs and in other ways, so I'm not really sure, but, um, yeah, I mean, that would be one place I think that would be interesting. I mean, as that would be, but I think that would be. What I would do is, um, this is a slightly more yeah. long term, right, yeah. would be to, thank you so much, we'll be in touch. Um, would be to start doing some of the minor publications involving Japan somehow. So you right. can start building that, that paper trail right. of your interests. Right. So you're building that connection. So maybe you're doing a comparison of, I don't know, Hemingway and the Japanese author. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That's true. That's a good idea. And the other place would be China. But again, there are other ways. There are other they ways always get, welcome. Exactly. There are other ways to get to China. Yeah. So, yeah. So, to do the Wuhan scholarship. Yeah, that's true. To do that. Um, so, I thought of that. Maybe next summer. I think it was last year. Maybe next year. Because you can do that again for a few weeks. You don't have to do this for an extended period of time. Although, my two weeks would be like June. <laughs> like, end of May and June. That is. Then it's really getting hot. So yeah, it's still hot. It's really hot. <laughs> um, but I've been there too, but only once. So um, and we went Nanjing. Nanjing. Um, so yeah, that was that's Anyway, so yeah, I was wondering earlier about the language. But I can see right if you have a language, I see that is distinct advantage, especially given the language, whether it wants to be. And you, you really can get by in most right. urban centers with a language. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, yes, I've done that. 
especially for in Tokyo, yes, but it's only hit Osaka. Again, this is probably 10 years ago, maybe a little more. Um, there were definitely people who spoke English, but it was not the same level of it. And it was not sort of, you know, across the board, almost anybody who had a conversation with had some English. In fact, it was hard for them to say they wanted to practice with Japanese. And they would once practice their English. So it was this ongoing struggle. No, no, I want to speak Japanese. No, no, we want to speak English. Yeah. <laughs> so they usually won. <laughs> so, you know, you want to be a good guest in the country. Um, but, um, no, this is great. And so we will. We do post that, but we, uh, we actually do have your PowerPoint, so if you're willing this place, we can. We do have okay, it on the website. And we're audio taping. Oh, it's on the website? Which one? Yes. Yes. Always, if they give us a PowerPoint, we're on the website. We are taping this conversation. 